and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. And I'm Allie. And today we are going back in time to the time of the Wars of the Roses, but we are not covering the Wars of the Roses. Yes, I know we talk about this thing, the Wars of the Roses, a lot because it really was a devastating and impactful time in English history. And we are covering a bit of it today, but... I think eventually we're going to do a series on the Wars of the Roses, right? Yes. So we'll add a little context and color, but we're going to try not to give the whole show away in that respect. Yeah. I mean, there's no way we could even cover it in probably two hours. So we'll try not to add it into this this episode. Because we were talking about a specific woman who lived during the time of the Wars of the Roses, and she did have it impact her life sometimes not so much sometimes quite a bit so we do we can't avoid talking about it today but we don't want to actually do a wars of the roses episode so we're talking about elizabeth woodville as bt's last time and she was the queen consort to king edward the fourth of england and she's interesting because you know last week we talked about eleanor of aquitaine and she was quite as royal as you could be right she was pedigreed as a queen of England and France. And Elizabeth Woodville is almost her opposite in some ways because she's often referred to as England's first commoner queen. Yes, and she really was, well, she wasn't a peasant, but she was a commoner. Yes, she was a commoner by English standards, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means. But she's interesting in her own right, aside from her birth, because she was queen consort of King Edward IV, which means she was queen consort during the Wars of the Roses from 1464 to 1483. And she often gets a bit maligned in history, even though she was, by all accounts, a pious woman. She was a good queen. She was a patron of learning and her people. And she was very suited to queenship through her personality and her experiences. And just by nature of being a queen during this time and having children, she somehow in history found herself as the wife of a king, the mother of a queen, grandmother of a king, and great-grandmother to two queens. So it's quite an impressive lineage for England's first commoner queen. Yeah, I would say so. So we're going to talk a little bit about how she came to be queen consort and how even despite the tumultuous political time she lived through and her reputation that her family legacy does endure and actually lived to the end of the Tudor dynasty. Let's let's talk about this question of commoner because it's not exactly a Cinderella story that we're talking about today. Like you said, she wasn't a peasant. It wasn't like the queen or the king just found her and, you know, was like, this poor servant girl who he decides to make his queen. It really wasn't like that. Common lineage by English standards meant that her father's family was part of the aristocracy or more specifically the landed gentry, meaning they were landowners, but not members of the peerage, meaning they weren't nobles. So And now, but her mother, so it goes by father, right? Because her mother actually did have some at least upper... Yeah, I'll talk about that because it is most likely based on her father's family um, because, you know, we've talked more about queens in our past episodes who did have this noble lineage and on, you know, on the more sides, the better, right? But more specifically, the paternal line is the one that carries more weight. So her father, Richard, 
you know, he wasn't poor. He was a knight in service to King Henry VI's uncle, John of Lancaster, who was the Duke of Bedford. And her mother, as you just mentioned, was Jaqueta of Luxembourg, who was the daughter of a count, and she was also the widow of this uncle of King Henry's, and therefore she was a duchess by her first marriage. And she got to keep that title after her husband died. And she was also related through marriage to Margaret of Anjou, who was the wife of Henry VI, and she could even trace her family lineage all the way back to Charlemagne. So she wasn't, like, from nowhere, but... Because of this marriage of her parents, her mother's lineage got a bit pushed to the wayside because her parents' marriage caused some scandal as the match was seen to be improper due to their vast differences in station. At the time of their marriage, as the widow of the king's uncle, Jaqueta was then the highest ranked lady of the court behind the queen herself. So she was England's second lady. And she was not supposed to marry without the king's permission. But she did. And not only that, she married a lowly knight in service of her dead husband. So Sounds like a love match. It was a love match. And, you know, it was a bit irresponsible of them given the time, but they were ultimately only fined about a thousand pounds, which I think one of her rich relatives paid. And eventually Richard was elevated to the peerage in 1448 as Baron Rivers. So by the time Elizabeth is born... Her family are members of the peerage, but they're new members of the peerage. They're low members of the peerage. And as a first-generation noble, her father's family history still counts for more as common than noble because the English are snobs. I mean, I think we talk about that quite a bit. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It's all about your father and his father and so forth. Right. So I think if you know anything about the Wars of the Roses from the brief history I just gave... It should go without saying that their family, due to their connections to the current king and his family, they were staunch Lancastrian supporters. And we'll go into what that means in a bit, but basically it means they're firmly in service to the current king, Henry VI. Like you said, this was a love match. It was. And their eldest child was born in 1437, and this is Elizabeth. And she's born in Grafton, Northamptonshire. Now, I don't really know English geography very well, but I think this is somewhere in the middle of the country. Around 1452, she's about 15, and she's married to a man, Sir John Gray of Groby, who's the son of a family in very similar circumstances to her own. So his family owns plenty of land, they have money and respect, but they're not noble. So they're just securely, financially sound members of the gentry. Sir John, as I said, all their family connections, they were in support of the current king, and her husband actually fought on behalf of his king and was killed in 1461 fighting on the Lancastrian side of the Second Battle of St. Albans. We don't really have to get too into what these different battles are, but the important thing is he was killed, which left Elizabeth then about 23 or 24 as a widow with two young sons. So we're talking about her as a queen consort, but It is interesting that she was previously married, and she did already have two children. Now, she's not the first queen consort in English history to be a widow, so that wasn't really a concern for most people, or at least not a concern that was insurmountable. I mean, we just talked about Eleanor of Aquitaine, who wasn't even a widow. She was just divorced. Exactly. And, you know, widows, we talked a little bit with um, Eleanor, like women who had property or status and were unmarried, were in danger. And now Elizabeth was not quite at this level of danger because she didn't have an entire duchy at her 
ownership, but she was left in an insecure position by her husband's death. In fact, she was left to try to secure her son's inheritance because, you know, there were some issues with his relatives potentially taking over the inheritance for uh, their own children or marrying and potential new heirs. You know, everyone had large families at this time, and just because your father owned a piece of land, it didn't necessarily ensure that it would go to you. So as she's trying to work on her son's behalf, she appeals to this man, William Lord Hastings, for help. And at this point, he's now King Edward's friend and Chamberlain, and now essentially the Yorkist viceroy of the area of the country that Elizabeth lives in. Elizabeth was really in dire straits. This man, Hastings, didn't really help her. Um, you know, he was definitely willing to profit from her misfortune, and he was driving a very hard bargain, hinging on various marriage scenarios for their children, but basically it boiled down to she was going to have to pay a lot of money no matter what to try to ensure that her son could keep his inheritance. But this was all ultimately moot because 18 days after she, inter like, in agrees to this negotiation with Hastings, Elizabeth marries the King of England. Well, that's handy. Yes. And this is Edward. So we've talked about both a King Henry and a King Edward. So what is going on? Well, let's take a quick break for a very brief War of the Roses history because this has all been going on in the background of young Elizabeth's life. Yes. And this is a bit of a refresher. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about Henry VIII. But I think it's important to provide the context for what's going on. Yes, and Henry VIII is the outcome of the end of the war, and we will talk a little bit about his parents at the end of this, because Elizabeth Woodville is Henry VIII's grandmother. But right now we're talking about the period of the 1450s and 60s, so the War of the Roses hasn't actually begun in earnest yet, but the, the groundwork has been laid for this conflict. So... And there's a lot of different moving parts, but I'm going to try to give the briefest of backgrounds. So we're not going to cover everything and Claire fill in any gaps that you think are important. But basically by the 1450s, the Hundred Years' War was ending, which was this long conflict between England and France. And it was ending unfavorably for England. So the country and the nobility are suffering the loss of virtually all of Henry V's conquests in France. And... This loss of lands and the revenue that come with those lands are, is leading to increasingly bitter divisions among the English nobility. And now Henry V's son, Henry VI, is king, and he's a weak ruler who is unable to manage these nobles. And he, because he's a weak ruler, weak man, potentially mentally ill, he falls increasingly under the influence of a faction of nobles led by his queen, Margaret, and the Dukes of Somerset and Suffolk. And they're known as the Lancastrians. And their political rivals are the Duke of York, his brother-in-law, the Earl of Salisbury, and Salisbury's son, the Earl of Warwick. And these are the Yorkists. So initially, the Yorkists are attempting to correct what they see as mismanagement of the kingdom and the kingdom's finances. But this evolves to York ultimately claiming the crown for himself in July of 1460. And he did have a legitimate ancestral claim to the throne that we're not going to get into but just know that there had been intermittent dynastic struggles in England since the time of Edward II, so for about 100 years. The crown's kind of been going back and forth between different factions. And it's been with this Lancastrian family for about 50 years at this point. But the two sides okay. reach an agreement where York and his heirs are going to succeed Henry VI. 
you know, Margaret, the queen, is definitely not happy about this. She has a son who she thinks is losing his inheritance, but everybody thinks this is going to head off a major conflict. However, it doesn't, and York is killed in battle in December of 1460. Salisbury is later executed, and Warwick lost the Second Battle of St. Albans in February of 1461, and this is the battle where Elizabeth Woodville's first husband was killed. Okay. And all of this eventually leads to Warwick crowning York's son Edward after the battle, and he's proclaimed by his supporters as Edward IV. So Henry VI has been deposed, and York, who initially claimed the crown, has died, and his eldest son was also killed. So his next eldest son, Edward, is bumped up to the crown. And that's where we are now. <laughs> Where's Henry? Henry's still alive at this point? Henry's still alive, but okay. he's variously kept in prison or with his wife, but he's does not have the backing of okay. enough nobles to retake his throne. Just curious. And he will come back into the story. But, you know, he was he was king from basically of an extremely young age. I think he might have even been a baby when his father died. And so he's always been at the control of these nobles and while a lot of them were ruling for him in good faith he also suffered from I I, I don't know if it was mental illness or he just had a nervous breakdown but he really was not equipped for the demands of being a king and you can see the effects as all of this comes to a head right okay yeah so hopefully that's enough context to go forward with this story do you think I missed anything No, I think that's good context. Like you said, we don't want to go too far into it because there's so much to talk about. We can totally do, you know, Henry the, is it Henry the Sixth? Yes. Sorry. Yes. Henry the Sixth and Edward the Fourth. And, you know, when you talk about Edward the Fourth's brothers, I mean, there's a lot to cover. You know, think about the fact that Shakespeare wrote a whole series of plays on this. So, yes. And we really shouldn't look to Shakespeare for the truth. A lot of what he wrote was based on myth. Um, You know, the Wars of the Roses did not start from a disagreement in a garden with roses, but it did start writing it from the perspective of, you know, the Tudor line. So, right. And he's writing it for better drama. But a lot of what he wrote did occur. And a lot of it is going to happen during Elizabeth Woodville's tenure as queen consort and after. So we talked about Elizabeth, this woman who's living a quiet life in the country. She's now widowed with two young sons. And we've mentioned now Edward IV, who has been bumped up from, you know, young lord to king of England. And after this conflict has erupted over the crown. So how did these two cross each other's path? So it would seem like they would have no occasion to meet, but they did. And it's true that no one really knows how or when truly this happened. It's possible Edward was trying to shore up support among former Lancastrian supporters and might have come across her family home in that way. Um, But they did form an attachment in 1464 when Edward did decide to marry her. And the traditional story goes that Elizabeth heard that the king would be hunting in Whittlewood Forest near her home, and she waited for him under an oak tree with her two sons. And when he rode by, she threw herself at his feet, pleading with him to endorse this agreement that she was trying to make with this man, Hastings. But in her attempt to plead with him, he falls in love with her, bowled over completely by her beauty. And... You know, Edward was a man known to love a 
good time with the women. He had a lot of mistresses. But he discovers that this woman, Elizabeth Woodville, is not going to be content to be his mistress, and she'll only be with him if he agrees to marry her. Rumor even circulated that she resisted him even when he held a dagger to her throat, although I read that that's probably not true and invented by these bewildered foreign observers who were like, this must be what happened for the king to marry this woman. Right, Um, right. And I want to just call out that I think there's a lot of parallels to stories you talked about before, and I think Anne Boleyn was taking notes. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is how you get a king to marry you. You just don't have sex with him. So it worked, whether that's true or not. But on April 30th, uh, the king was on his way north to confront a new Lancastrian threat when he slipped away from his entourage and rode to Grafton, where he and Elizabeth were secretly wed on May 1st in front of her mother, a priest, and a few other witnesses. Um, The marriage was consummated, and then Edward returns to his camp where he says, I've just been out hunting. And while he remains in the area, he finds excuses to visit his wife, which are visits facilitated by her mother and possibly even kept secret from her father. And this continues for about five months until September when Edward is forced to admit to the marriage when his advisors pressed him to marry a foreigner, um, sister-in-law to the King of France, Bonna of Savoy. Ruh-roh. Yeah, probably the reality is a little different. You know, it's a very romantic story that the king slipped away to marry his bride on May Day. But however the marriage occurred or how long it was kept secret, you know, it would have been extremely difficult for Edward to keep this secret because he's constantly attended by courtiers. And as king, he has basically no privacy. And so he would have found arranging secret meetings extremely difficult to pull off for a period of almost five months. But however this really occurred, the reality is that there was little time between their meeting and their marriage. And, you know, this shortened time period really didn't reflect well on Elizabeth. You know, some views draw her as scheming for the crown and bewitching the king. But it's true that she herself was very surprised by these events and how quickly they happened. Because, you know, I mentioned before, she made this agreement with Hastings and 18 days later she marries the king. Why would she even be bothering to make this deal for her children's inheritance if she knows that she's going to marry the king? Right. Like, surely he can do a much better job of providing for her children. But it's true that however and for whatever reason, this was a secret because Edward knew that his choice in bride was going to be a major issue. Well, he's also, yeah, I mean, he's just taken the crown and he has to, you know, we talk about this all the time. He has to secure his position politically. This isn't the best way to do that. This is absolutely not the way to do this. And it he was right for keeping this a secret as long as he could because this was a major issue with his nobles. The marriage takes place just over three years since Edward claims the throne. And as you said, you know, this is a very touchy time. He needs to solidify his place as king. And this process is still ongoing. And Elizabeth is beautiful, but she has no wealth. She has no status. And she, most importantly, has no political alliance to bring to the union. She is, in fact, the first English subject to marry a king of England since before the Norman Conquest in 1066. So... His nobles rightly feel that he's squandered this opportunity to forge an alliance with a great ruling house of Europe, and maybe even more importantly than that, fill his depleted treasury with a large dowry that might come with one of these brides. Mm. And 
marrying an English subject, he doesn't even choose the right English subject because they might have felt slightly better about his choice if he had chosen a daughter from a Yorkist noble family, you know, rewarding these families for their support. But instead, he falls in love with a woman from a recently ennobled family, which, you know, you no money. But they were also former Lancastrian supporters. So he's not even going from, you know, picking from this pool of women from the Yorkist, he goes for a Lancastrian. And I think we've mentioned this briefly before, but it goes almost without saying that her mother's lineage and former position counted for basically nothing because it didn't translate into foreign connections. And, you know, for Elizabeth, this lack of connections is going to be felt in the future because she's twice forced into sanctuary during Edward's reign without the recourse of foreign support or intervention. So these aren't actually small problems. Hmm. And you know what's interesting? I was thinking a lot about like Cinderella and, you know, especially the portrayal in the movie Ever After where he, you know, eschews a foreign Spanish bride for this young servant girl. And I'm like, wow, his parents must have been really pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's the same thing, you know? I mean, she's just really not bringing that much to the table, if anything. Right. It's not all bad news. I mean, she was truly beautiful by all accounts, which at the time was considered to be this outward personification of goodness. So the people are prepared to love this queen. And also, as I said before, she possessed a strong character and personality, which was really well suited to the demands of queenship. And because she's a widow with two young sons, she has a proven ability to produce healthy children, which is kind of the ticket to success for a queen at this time. I mentioned before how he had chosen a Lancastrian over a Yorkist family, but in a way, this is also a political asset, as Edward could not be accused of favoring a Yorkist family over another with his choice of wife, and her links to the House of Lancaster can also be spun into this tale of English reconciliation. You know, the wars are over, you're bringing a Lancaster bride into your Yorkist kingship. It's, It's a good PR tale. Yeah. However, despite whatever good balance she's bringing to this equation, there's huge, huge problems ahead because the major issue is the size of Elizabeth's family. So, you know, we mentioned her parents had a love match and it's clear that this affection didn't wane because by the time she marries Edward, she has five brothers and seven sisters. Holy and they crap. all have to be provided for. <laughs> so, right, and, and of course she's going to do her best Well, she is, but also Edward is because, you know, he's granting her family titles and setting up marriages because he has to bring them up to the appropriate status, right? Because she's now a queen. And unfortunately, he's doing this at the expense of existing noble families, which is causing a lot of outrage and resentment, you know, if not always to the king's face. But most notably, this man, Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, who felt himself responsible for putting Edward on the throne, he's really chafing at the upward mobility of the Woodvilles and viewing this as poor repayment for his own actions in putting Edward on the throne because he's expecting his own, you know, due and reward for this. And he sees his family kind of being pushed out of the way in favor of the Queen's family. And Some people agreed with him. You know, some sources even now claim that she schemed to use her queenship to elevate her family. I think other sources are a bit more fair because it really would have looked terrible to have the queen's parents and sibling stay in this lowly noble status. 
And it's also not her fault that her parents had so many kids, you know? Um, right. And the, the truth is that Edward needs to ensure her status and that of her family don't diminish his own status because he's the king of England. He needs his wife and her family to at least be, if not on his level, not so far below that it's embarrassing. And also politically, it's a great opportunity for him because he is essentially a usurper to the throne and now he can forge alliances with England's powerful families, whether they want to do it or not. Right. They're not going to turn down their king. This proceeds apace. You know, her father is appointed to the office of treasurer and he's created an earl. Three of her sisters are married to the sons of the earls of Kent, Essex, and Pembroke. And her 20-year-old brother John marries Catherine Neville, Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, who is a young lady of 60-something. <laughs> See, I think that's where you, like, run into problems because that's nothing but a money grab. Absolutely. And this did raise a lot of eyebrows. Now, he was about 20 at the time, and she had already been widowed three times. So people know, you know, this isn't, this is a cash grab. This is to get her lands and titles, although it wasn't unheard of for this to happen. So the the blowback was maybe a bit hypocritical. And ultimately, though, it didn't matter because she actually outlived her husband. So she was widowed a fourth time. Wow. Yeah, it did create a tad bit of scandal at court, though. Um, And then Elizabeth's son, Thomas, from her first marriage, actually eventually married the seventh Baroness Harrington, and they had 14 children, of whom Lady Jane Grey is a descendant. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so we're already bleeding into Tudor times. So all of this political wheeling and dealing is going down in the background, but Elizabeth is eventually crowned queen on May 26, 1465, and this is a full year after their marriage, and the date might have been delayed in order to allow for her more aristocratic relatives to arrive from the continent for appearances' sake, of course. Of course. Um, Yeah. You gotta show off what you've got. Right. You don't want to bring just the English gentry here. You want to bring the count of, you know, and her mother's relatives. And then almost a year later, she does give birth to their first child, a daughter called Elizabeth, on February 11th, 1466. So happily married, turning out babies, you know, he hasn't made the best choice in bride, but they're going to try to make this work. Um, It works for a while, but eventually troubles start to pop up again. So we've mentioned this man, the Earl of Warwick, and he styled himself as the kingmaker because he was essentially responsible for putting Edward on the throne. And he's going to be a bit of a thorn in Edward's side. So I'm going to try to condense this a little bit, but Basically, we're talking about the 25 months from April of 1469 to May of 1471. And this is one of the most dramatic times in English history. So a lot is going to happen. And I'm going to attempt to cover it without getting too into the weeds, as Elizabeth Woodville was not present for most of the military campaigning, but she was affected by events. So we're going to just cover them on a high level. Okay. Um, so... By 1469, Edward's honeymoon with his subjects is over. You know, they're thinking that this new king is going to fix all the problems of Henry VI's reign, but he doesn't, or at least not as quickly as they want. And so they're beginning to express disappointment that this new regime hasn't met their expectations. And meanwhile, the Earl of Warwick is beginning to style himself as a leader of the opposition. You know, he's going around talking to the right important people saying, yeah, you know, Edward hasn't really 
turned out the way I wanted or that we expected and oh by the way what's the deal with him promoting his wife's family aren't you worried about losing your land so he's really fomenting this discord and this stems a lot from one his resentment of the Woodvilles and also his diminished influence at court which wasn't directly related to the advancement of the Woodvilles it was a lot of different reasons but you know, some of it might have just been that Edward didn't need him as much anymore. But for whatever reason, his status at court is not what it was, and he's not happy about this. And eventually it leads him all the way to switch allegiances to the Lancaster cause. Whoa. Yeah, so he... What's that man we talked about with um, Matilda? There was the bishop, and then her brother Gloucester as well. You know, he's kind of pulling the same move of switching sides. Not cool, but... No, and he's not nice about it either. You know, his actions eventually lead to the execution of Elizabeth's father in 1469. He joins up with Edward's jealous brother, George, the Duke of Clarence, and they conspired to accuse Elizabeth's mother of witchcraft, basically claiming that it was her sorcery that led Edward to fall in love with Elizabeth. This didn't really go anywhere. The charges were obviously false. They had paid off witnesses and, you know, her mother was fine. But this leads to a few more attempts at revolt, where eventually both Warwick and Clarence flee to France. And there, Warwick allies himself with Margaret of Anjou, and they do eventually temporarily restore her husband, Henry, to the throne in 1470, although that only lasts for about six months. Edward returns from exile and defeats Warwick in 1471 at the Battle of Barnett, and not long after that, the Yorkists have a resounding victory at the Battle of Tewkesbury, during which Henry's heir, Edward of Lancaster, was killed. And then, not too long after that, Henry VI was killed in the Tower soon after on May 21st. And now, isn't the rumor that Edward killed him? Maybe that's getting too far into the weeds, but... That's the rumor. It might not have been Edward, but it's true that the day Edward returned to London... Henry was killed and they tried to say he died of you know a nervous breakdown over all of these events but I think eventually they dug up his bones and his skull had been crushed from the back so he died of a blow to the head it was definitely murder (laughs) yeah I mean that is a very quick succinct version of what's happening during this time but all you really need to know is Edward is forced to flee. Henry is briefly restored to the throne, and then Edward returns and seems to fully cement his kingship. Um, So what's going on with Elizabeth? So during this time, she's having a bit of a rough go. Um, She's experiencing the murders of her father and her brother. She has no foreign relatives to turn to, so she's forced to seek sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. And actually there on November 1st, 1870, she gives birth there to Edward, the king's heir. And this is later Edward V. Gotcha. Um, I mean, she's in dire straits in where she's forced to give birth in a church, basically, because she she can't even go to the Tower of London because she can't trust that it won't be taken over. Um, She was, however, later in the Tower while Edward's returning and fighting these various battles. And she's in the Tower while it's under siege. And that's obviously stressful as well. But her comportment during this time won her many contemporary admirers, as it was thought that she behaved with nothing less than queenly dignity, despite everything happening. So it really puts her in a good light, although I can imagine hiding in the abbey with your three daughters and your newborn baby is a bit stressful. 
Yes, I would imagine. Yeah. So, like like I said, I've barely touched on it. It was a busy 25 months. And I think that stretch of time is a good chunk of the Wars of the Roses. We'll cover that another day. Yes. So now she's getting into the most secure part of her life, but it's, of course, not going to stay that way. So after 1475, it's a relatively quiet period. Edward is reestablishing his reign. Um, unfortunately, his brother, the Duke of Clarence's jealousy, continues to spiral. And though Edward had forgiven him for his previous offenses with Warwick, you know, the putting the other king back on the throne, fleeing to France, all of that. Ultimately, Clarence proves to be too great of a problem, and he's arrested and privately executed in 1478, uh, as tradition says, drowned in a vat of Malmsey wine. Which is, of course, part of the Shakespearean record, but also probably happened. Yes, it is the Shakespearean record, but that's the traditional tale of how the Duke of Clarence was killed. Um, I suppose... What a way to go. Yeah. I, they must have been drunk or just out of ideas, or maybe it was the most expedient option. I don't know. That's a really weird way to kill someone. Well, I remember reading something one time where, again, this goes back to Elizabeth's detractors, but apparently that was her favorite, Momsy Wine. Momsy Wine? <laughs> yes. And so some people saw that as her hand in the murder and something very symbolic you know it could be because you know warwick died in battle so she couldn't really get her revenge on him but she did well it was said that she did vow revenge on warwick and clarence after her father and brother were murdered because the charges against them were essentially trumped up charges there was no reason to kill them other than they were woodvilles and nobody liked woodvilles at the time because they were taking up all the land and all the money. So it's, you know, that kind of makes sense if she thought that was some sort of poetic justice for what Clarence had played a part in that. I don't know. But I think it's very poetic if that's how it happened. Yeah, I I think some of that comes from, like I said, her bad reputation. But whether that's true or not, or whether they just needed some way to kill him and there wasn't a vat of water around, I don't know. In any case... The Duke of Clarence has now been disposed of. Um, in November of 1480, Elizabeth gives birth to her last child, a daughter called Bridget. And this is the last of her 12 known pregnancies. She may have had more. Um, you know, they didn't always record them. But I think regardless of whether the number is 12 or higher, it's pretty good evidence that she kept her husband's affections throughout their marriage. You know, notwithstanding his mistresses, of course. Like I said, Edward was known to like mistresses. Although he only had two recorded mistresses, it's likely he had more. And he didn't support his illegitimate children, but of course he definitely probably had them. However, you know, two years later by Christmas 1482, the king's health is notably beginning to decline. And I read any speculation that was ranging from pneumonia to appendicitis, so they don't really know what was wrong with him. But it was an illness. Um, He took to his bed at the end of March and died on April 9th of 1483, and Elizabeth became Queen Dowager. So Edward dies a natural death, which is surprising considering the time period and how all of these other nobles are dying on the battlefield. So given that, it's expected to be a relatively smooth transition to the next king, although Edward, her son, is now only 12. So he 
is immediately called Edward the Fifth, and his uncle Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, is set to be Lord Protector, or essentially Regent. But... <laughs> Richard, who this entire time has been a staunch supporter of Edward, kind of starts to show his true colors. Now, whether it's out of fear that the Woodvilles would monopolize power or he just really saw the kingship in his grasp and decided to take it, he really doesn't behave according to expectations. So he moves to take control of the young king and had Elizabeth's brother and one of her sons from her first marriage arrested and I do believe they were eventually executed. Yes. Lord Hastings, this man all the way back at the beginning that Elizabeth had arranged this um, contract with, was also arrested and executed for conspiracy, although the conspiracy was to crown the rightful king, which I guess was treasonous to Richard. And Edward V is moved to the Tower of London to supposedly await his coronation, and his brother Richard is sent to join him. Now, Elizabeth really resisted her younger son going to the Tower, so... A lot of historians take that as evidence that she really suspected that Richard didn't have a good ending planned, but she was ultimately really powerless to stop him. She didn't have an army at her disposal. She didn't have any power, so she had to send her son to the tower. An act of parliament was passed that declared her sons with Edward IV to be illegitimate on the grounds that Edward had had a pre-contract for marriage with a Lady Eleanor Butler, and therefore his marriage to Elizabeth was not legal. Um, I want to just mention this is highly unlikely to be true. The Yorkist claim to the throne was based on strict primogeniture, and had there been any question of the legality of their marriage, Elizabeth and Edward could easily have formally remarried after Lady Butler died all the way back in 1468. So they weren't um, worried about it. No, this wasn't a concern for them at all, which speaks mostly to the truth that it was probably just propaganda trumped up to enforce Richard's own legitimacy, and also because the act carried charges of witchcraft against Elizabeth. I don't know. It just feels desperate. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. What do you do against a strong woman? You accuse her of witchcraft. It's the same thing they try to do to her mother. Lissai. Yeah. So Richard does take the throne as Richard III on June 26. Elizabeth's son's become known to history as the boys in the tower. Their fates are essentially lost to time after the summer of 1483. Likely they were murdered, but there's no written record of it, so it's one of history's great mysteries. We should probably cover that. I think we will. It's it's interesting. I think a lot of fiction likes to spin the tale that one of them survived, but it's likely that they were smothered to death or maybe something more violent in the tower. And everyone assumed that they were dead. They were never seen again, and so everyone's acting as if this is what has happened. And in fact, on the assumption that her sons are dead, Elizabeth then allies herself with Lady Margaret Beaufort for the cause of her son, Henry Tudor. We haven't really mentioned them. They're kind of this wild card Lancastrian offshoot family throughout the Wars of the Roses. But at this point, as a great-great-great-grandson of Edward III, and a man whose father had been the half-brother of Henry VI, Henry Tudor is now the closest Lancastrian male heir to the throne. So his claim is pretty good. He's not the man who killed her sons, so Margaret and Elizabeth agreed to unite these warring houses because, again, Henry Tudor is a Lancastrian, and Elizabeth is a Yorkist, but, again, Henry Tudor is not Richard III. So, and she started off as a Lancastrian, so really she's just going home. I mean, yes, 
you could you could question whether any of these you know loyalties what they meant to Elizabeth given her family histories but whatever the case she decides that she's going to marry her eldest daughter now Elizabeth of York to Henry because Elizabeth is now heiress to the house of York on the assumed death of her brothers so by her marrying Henry they're going to unite the two sides but really it doesn't matter what side you're on at this point I think for her it's what's the best option you know if if we take at face value that her sons have already been murdered it's right. what's going to keep my family alive and what's going to keep me alive and and what's going to have the best possible outcome for the future. Yes, and what's going to keep my family in power? You know, she's at this point not even queen dowager because Richard has stripped her titles, but her daughter Elizabeth has a chance. So why not go that way? I mean, it's not an easy fix. Henry Tudor has potentially a very long uphill battle um, before this could come to pass. But but in the meantime, in 1484, the family returns to court, which is a bit surprising. But likely Elizabeth realized that any further resistance to Richard would only harm her surviving children. And so she goes where she feels safest because Henry Tudor is an option, but he's still got to campaign and make his case and more importantly, win a battle. Hmm. Um, Richard's wife, Anne Neville, dies in 1485, and rumors begin to swirl that Richard intends to marry Elizabeth of York, who, if you're keeping track, is his niece. Gross. How they ever plan to get that past the Pope, I don't know. I mean, the Pope seems to have problem with fourth cousins, so a niece seems insurmountable. But it didn't matter because the nobles didn't support this idea, as they feared a Woodville restoration. Because remember, a lot of this started because they're just worried about Elizabeth's family remaining in power. Um, None of them have really forgotten how they came to power and what it cost them. So Richard's forced to publicly deny any thought of marrying Elizabeth. Now, Whether it's true that Elizabeth Woodville intended to marry her daughter to her son's murderer or potential murderer, I don't know. I mean, I have have a hard time believing that. Yeah, there. One courtier swore he that he saw a letter that Elizabeth had written to Richard that seemed to imply that she was all for it, but or this is Elizabeth of York, but. She might have written it at her mother's behest. And who knows, maybe it's just Elizabeth Woodville trying to play the game and do whatever she can to keep her family safe but in power. It didn't happen because it didn't even matter. Ultimately, in 1485, Henry Tudor defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field um, with a small army, including two of Elizabeth Woodville's brothers, Edward and Richard. Subsequently, he did marry Elizabeth of York and he restored the title and honors to Elizabeth Woodville of Dowager Queen. So she doesn't have to marry her daughter to her uncle. She just marries her instead to another distant relation. Yay! Yay! Cousins <laughs> or is all it? around. So Henry becomes Henry VII. Elizabeth becomes queen. This is her daughter, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth Woodville spends the last years of her life in religious retirement of, at Bermondsey Abbey after February 1487. It's a bit unclear to history why she chose this form of retirement, and there's two prevailing theories. Possibly she was forced from court by Henry after news reached him of an attemptist Yorkist uprising from Ireland. I thought you were going to say after 
nude selfies leaked. <laughs> I just like for a second, I thought that's what you were going to say. And I fully know that that's not possible. I just thought that's what you were going to say. Yes, after her nude selfie scandal, <laughs> um, there is record of him removing her from court on the grounds that she had imperiled his cause by surrendering her daughters to King Richard. This is when they returned to court in 1484, three years earlier. Um, it's a bit ridiculous. Um, he already knew about this when he agreed to marry Elizabeth of York, and so you would have thought he might have worked through his issues with this already. But this claim points to a possible other reason for her banishment, which is that she was conspiring against him. But why Why would she do that, right? I mean, why would... Her daughter is now queen, so conspiring against her son-in-law would ultimately affect her daughter. Um, yeah, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Unless she's, like, totally gone a little crazy from all the stress over the years. Yeah, it's possible Henry was trumping up a charge looking to dispel any ideas that he was ruling by white by right of his wife and he didn't want to risk the offense to his new supporters including some members of the Woodville family by a public trial so he just came up with a reason and removed her from court it's also possible that Elizabeth was resentful that she found very little remaining influence at the new court as Henry was greatly under the influence of his mother Margaret Beaufort mm. The alternate theory is that she had planned this all along, you know, to live the end of her life this way, surrendering her lands and retiring to religious seclusion by her own will. That's a bit iffy, um, because why would she want to give up her lands and titles? She hadn't really ever shown an inclination to do that. But this is supported a little bit more by the idea that Henry did briefly contemplate marrying her to James III of Scotland in 1487, why would he do that if he suspected her of treason? James was killed in battle in 1488, and this came to nothing. And it's also possible Henry was just using the potential Scott alliance to keep the Scots in place. But it's true that the contrast of her last years to those of Henry's mother led many to believe that she was being punished for something. So most sources I read seem to agree that she was actively working to overthrow Henry. I don't know that there's any proof for that, but it's an open question as to why she spent the last of her life this way. I always wonder if perhaps it's just a matter of the fact that, you know, Henry's mother, Margaret Beaufort, literally worked her entire life to elevate him to the status of king and by all accounts once he was the king she exercised enormous influence over his decision making and it may be a simple matter of there just wasn't room for two queen mothers it that sounds entirely plausible to me i mean there's a lot of speculation that elizabeth woodville was thinking to overthrow henry and then marry elizabeth to the earl of warwick and just create a new dynasty that way. It doesn't way. make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And I think it just speaks to this reputation that she had where people just want to assign bad motives to her, even though there's not a lot of contemporary proof for that. I mean, she really acted in the way that was expected of her position. You know, she acted like a queen, but I think because her background wasn't to a lot of people supposedly deserving of that, she was viewed as... And she suffered from a bit of the Matilda problem of a woman assuming power that she was seen to not be deserving of. Right. And especially when she's yeah. viewed from the very beginning as grabbing power. Yes. So we really have to remember that when we hear these theories that there was there is a tendency even now, I think, to assign 
machinations to her that might not have been the case. Now, because we don't really know and because it's true that Henry did essentially banish her from court, that raises a lot of questions. In any case, she did spend the last five years of her life at this abbey where she died on June 8th of 1492. Her funeral was very simple, and a lot of people were surprised by that. I mean, she was a dowager queen of England, but this was according to her own wishes. Um, And she was laid to rest with Edward in St. George's Chapel at Windsor. Like I said, she's extremely maligned, especially in the Wars of the Roses, and perhaps one of the most maligned people of the entire Middle Ages. But whatever the truth is of her character, we can't deny that her legacy endures. You know, I went through at the beginning the whole rundown of her dynasty, essentially, and it's incredible to me that that even happened, because this is a woman who survived allegiance to both Lancaster and York, and as we've seen, even members on each side didn't always find it easy to survive this whole war. She survived the usurpation of her son's crown, and she still ended up mother to her successor as queen, if we exclude Anne Neville, and she lived to see her family line continue into the Tudor dynasty. So, not a bad job. Yeah, not bad all around. Yeah, not bad for England's first commoner queen. And I, you know, I was thinking about this a bit in the context of the modern gossip that we've talked about. I just can't help think that some of this bad press, I mean, who knows, maybe she was a horrible woman who did everything that she's accused of, but I just can't help feel that she suffered at the hands of English snobbery. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think that's that's the whole premise of the system right and then if you have someone who's not supposed to be in the club joining the club and marrying the head honcho it's kind of a problem problem for everyone else if you're buying into this pyramid scheme you're not supposed to jump from the bottom to the top right and which is essentially what she did and it's funny because you know this whole upcry about the the woodville's gaining power It's not the first family to have this happen. I mean, the truth is that without new blood, these royal royal and noble families are at risk of going extinct. And so bringing in new, um, I think they were called parvenu, which is like these new families to the system, it's not unheard of and it's absolutely necessary. But I think there was this idea that it happens and you don't talk about it and it only happens at a small scale, not bringing, what was it, like, 12 siblings into the fray that all need to be married off to wealthy sons of noble houses so oh yeah I mean they definitely had a monopoly on the marriage market it sounds like yeah and interestingly um Elizabeth and Edward I didn't really talk about this but they suffered a bit from the same problem as well because they had so many children and the task of trying to marry them off to um, foreign markets was a bit daunting I think at one point Elizabeth was engaged or potentially engaged to the son of, I think it was one of the sons of Isabel and Ferdinand, Isabella and Ferdinand, or the daughter, but then, no, it was a daughter who was engaged to one of their sons, but then they had a son, and so that was less desirable because the daughter of Spain wasn't going to be the heir, which I thought was ironic considering by the time you get all the way down to their daughter, Catherine, she's engaged to Elizabeth's grandson. So they kept going back. (laughs) Yeah, and I think when you talk about these families having so many children over so many years, it's entirely plausible, if unfathomable today, that you could engage 
your grandson to this sister of someone that you wanted to engage your son to you know like well everybody's having kids at 15 yeah (laughs) it's easy to do yeah I mean um Henry the seventh mother had him when she was 13 so yeah 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 and it's um I was reading something Elizabeth was likely 15 when she got married she could have been 13 but we don't really know it wasn't actually common for 13-year-olds to be married and having children because even though the youngest age was 12, according to the church, I think generally it was recognized that 12-year-old, 13-year-old bodies were not quite ready to bear children. Right. Well, that's like yeah. Henry the Seventh's mother. She was 13 and she he like they tossed her up and down in a sheet to try to get the baby out of her. Well, she was very small. And she was also very young, and I think that's why he was also her only child. I don't well, think she was her, able to have children after that. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's another so that's tale. Elizabeth, yeah, that's Elizabeth Woodville. You know, it's it was interesting trying to research her because there's not that much that's actually recorded about her, especially her early life. And she is tied up almost completely in this tale of the Wars of the Roses. And so I was really trying to focus on what that would have meant for her again given that she's such a maligned figure that also wasn't easy to find because people just are so happy to blame her (laughs) right i always blame the wife that's the first commoner queen that's what i think is so interesting about her is like she wasn't even older than edward (laughs) yeah she was about four years older than him okay yeah that's why the charges of witchcraft come because how could this old middle-aged widow trapped the you know king of england even though she was like 23 and apparently incredibly beautiful you know and it's not she wasn't beautiful in the way that they just describe royalty as beautiful no matter what they look like she was apparently gorgeous so oh well that helps and i was just gonna say it's probably more a matter of youthful stubbornness on her husband's part yeah and i want to say she was gorgeous for the time she definitely i was reading did the practice where they like pluck their forehead hair do you remember that they would either like shave or pluck their forehead to give themselves like a super high forehead and then they'd wear like this veil that went down over it her her portrait really uh illustrates this that i'll put that up on the site but yeah i don't know that had to that was very specific to the time (laughs) interesting interesting Yeah. yeah um all right so who do we have on deck next time I'm not sure. Well, then it will be a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I have to but look at the list. But we're almost done with our series of queens. I think we only have one more. Oh, is it Mary of Tech? Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. I had to rack my brain for a second. So another queen consort, but we're going all the way into the 20th century. She's a character too. So yeah, that'll be interesting. I think that's why I like talking about these consorts because they are characters, but they are interesting because they come into this whole situation they're not born into it so it's not I don't want to use the word it's choice because I think we've established for most of them it wasn't but nevertheless it's still a circumstance that they were not born into especially Elizabeth Woodville yes 100% all right well we will talk about Mary of Tech next time until then yeah until then Monarchast is produced by me Allie and me Claire And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. 
If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.